York. This is Democracy Now! Earlier today, just today, just Russia blew up a major dam located in Novokakhovka, causing significant civilians evacuations. We can state unequivocally that we are talking about deliberate sabotage of the Kahovka Dam by the Ukrainian side. The sabotage has potentially very serious consequences. Thousands of people have been evacuated in Ukraine after an explosion damaged a critical dam in Russian-occupied Kherson region. Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other. We'll go to Kyiv for the latest. Plus, we look at growing calls in Australia from the prime minister on down for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to be finally freed from prison in London and not extradited to the United States. We're making very clear uh, what our position is on, on Mr Assange's case. There is nothing to be served by his ongoing incarceration. We'll speak to longtime Assange attorney Jen Robinson in London. But we begin in Atlanta, where the city council just approved new funding for Cop City, despite hearing over 14 hours of public comment from residents opposed to the massive police training center. But for many of us, the human rights violations from murdering Manuel Tortuguita Tehran and charging dozens of people with RICO and domestic terrorism to the inhumane conditions of both Fulton and DeKalb County's jail, added with the moving goalpost of city officials related to the financial cost and benefit analysis is exactly why we organized against it then and exactly why we organize against it now. We'll speak to Reverend James Woodall, who testified at the city council, as well as Marlon Couts, a member of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, who just spent four days in jail after an armed SWAT team raided the headquarters of the bail fund, which has raised money for activists in jail for protesting Cop City. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Evacuation efforts are underway in southern Ukraine, where floodwaters are rising after a dam on the Dnipro River was breached overnight in the Russian-occupied Ukrainian town of Nova Khakovka. The breach has created an additional humanitarian disaster in an area that's seen heavy fighting since Russia's invasion. Ukraine's government says floodwaters are threatening 80 towns and villages, as well as the city of Kherson, home to 300,000 people. The breach could also limit drinking water supplies across Kherson and Crimea. Ukrainian officials accuse Russia's military of deliberately sabotaging the dam, calling it an act of ecocide. Russian officials blamed Ukrainian artillery fire for the breach. The disaster has raised fears of a nuclear accident at Europe's largest nuclear power station, the Six Reactors Aparicha plant, which is upstream of the dam breach. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, said earlier today the plant relies on a reservoir formed by the dam for critical cooling systems at the nuclear plant. Absence of cooling water in the essential water systems for an extended period of time would cause fuel melt and inoperability of the emergency diesel generators. However, our current assessment is that there is no immediate risk to the safety of the plant. 
We are following this by the minute, as you can imagine. The dam breach came as Russia's military said it had repelled a major offensive by Ukrainian forces in the Russian-occupied Donetsk region. It's believed to be the start of a long-anticipated counteroffensive by Ukraine's army. We'll have more on the dam crisis in Ukraine later in the broadcast. In Haiti, at least 42 people have died. Dozens more have been injured. Over 13,000 people have been forced from their homes after a weekend of nonstop rain caused rivers to overtop their banks, triggering flash floods and landslides. Even before the flooding, the U.N. reported more than 5 million Haitians, or nearly half the population, were in need of humanitarian assistance. In eastern Canada— Firefighters have contained a massive wildfire that's driven thousands of people from their homes in Nova Scotia and triggered air quality alerts as far south as the U.S. state of Virginia. Another major fire in southwestern Nova Scotia continues to burn out of control. On Monday, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reported the past year or so one of the largest surges of carbon dioxide levels on record, bringing atmospheric levels of the heat-trapping gas to 400 24 parts per million. That's 50 percent higher than levels at the start of the Industrial Revolution and the highest level of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere in over 4 million years. China's accused the United States of provocative and dangerous actions after U.S. and Chinese warships came into close contact in the Taiwan Strait. Video of Saturday's incident released by the Pentagon shows a Chinese warship coming within 150 yards of a U.S. destroyer. This comes just days after the Pentagon said a Chinese fighter jet cut across the path of a U.S. spy plane as it flew over the South China Sea. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson defended the maneuvers. I want to emphasize that the truth is the U.S. side stirred up troubles and made provocations first, while the Chinese side dealt with this in accordance with corresponding laws and regulations. China always respects the freedoms of navigation and overflight enjoyed by all countries under international law. Meanwhile, U.S. lawmakers have invited Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to address a joint session of Congress later this month. The invitation came as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with his Indian counterpart in New Delhi, pressing cooperation with India in the face of the growing military tensions between the United States and China. Today, the U.S.-India partnership is a cornerstone of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And our deepening bonds show how tech technological innovation and growing military cooperation between two great powers can be a force for global good. In the Israeli-occupied West Bank, a two-year-old Palestinian toddler has died after Israeli soldiers shot him in the head last week, while he and his father sat in a car outside their home in Nabi Saleh. Israeli forces stormed the residential neighborhood and started firing indiscriminately, hitting Mohammed Tamimi and his father, who was also seriously wounded. Tamimi succumbed to his wounds Monday, four days after being put on life support. Relatives are demanding justice. This is his uncle. When he was born, he stayed 30 days in the incubator. But after he grew up a bit and started walking and started to be active, he stole our hearts. Muhammad is a social child with a strong, loving personality. He would approach anybody. He captured our hearts, and sadly, this broke our hearts.
At least 27 children have been killed by Israeli soldiers this year, according to Defense for Children International Palestine. The group said in a statement, quote, unlawful killings of Palestinian children have become the norm as Israeli forces become increasingly empowered to use intentional lethal force in situations that are not justified. This is a war crime with no consequence, they said. In related news, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has vowed the United States will play an integral role in helping formalize diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Blinken spoke Monday at a conference of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or AIPAC, where he told the crowd, Washington has a national security interest in brokering ties between the two countries. Blinken is scheduled to travel to Saudi Arabia later this week. In Georgia, Atlanta City Council has voted in favor of funding the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, a massive police training facility known as Cop City. The city council's 11-4 vote capped a marathon session that began early Monday afternoon and lasted until 5.30 this morning. Activists opposed to city Cop City packed the Atlanta City Hall and took turns denouncing the $67 million project during 14 hours of public comment. After headlines, we'll go to Atlanta for the latest. Missouri officials are moving forward with the execution of 42-year-old Michael Tissius today, despite pleas from human rights groups and even former jurors in his case to spare his life. The Supreme Court Monday denied a stay, while Republican Governor Mike Parson refused to grant Tissius clemency. He was convicted of killing two jail guards when he was 19 years old. Six jurors, including two alternates, recently came out in support of commuting Tissius's sentence to life in prison. He, his clemency petition described the horrific violence and neglect he endured as a child, which had detrimental impacts on his neurological and mental health. In 2000, Tissius was sent to jail over a probation violation, where his cellmate convinced Tissius to help him escape, leading to the death of the two guards. Oklahoma officials have proved an application by the state's Catholic archdiocese to establish the first publicly funded religious charter school in the United States. Monday's 3-2 to two vote by the Oklahoma statewide virtual charter school board came over the objections of Oklahoma's Republican attorney general, who said it clearly violates the state's constitution. Catholic Church officials in Oklahoma are hoping that any legal fight over the charter school will reach the U.S. Supreme Court, whose conservative 6-3 majority has recently overturned decades of precedent on the separation of church and state. Federal prosecutors probing former President Trump's mishandling of classified documents have issued a subpoena seeking information about Trump's overseas business dealings during his time in office. Special counsel Jack Smith is focused on the Trump Organization's real estate licensing and development deals in China, France, Kuwait, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates since 2017. On Monday, the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington reported Trump made over $82 million from his businesses in Ireland and Scotland while serving as president. Meanwhile, NBC News reports prosecutors have convened a separate federal grand jury in Florida to hear evidence in Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's mishandling of documents. 
Author, civil rights activist and professor of philosophy Cornell West has announced he's running for president as a candidate with the People's Party. In a short video released Monday, West said his campaign will focus on ending poverty, mass incarceration, wars and ecological collapse, while guaranteeing housing, health care, education and living wages for all. I have decided to run for truth and justice, which takes the form of running for president of the United States as a candidate for the People's Party. I enter in the quest for truth. I enter in the quest for justice. And the presidency is just one vehicle to pursue that truth and justice, what I've been trying to do all of my life. And in Brazil, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has unveiled a plan to end deforestation in the Amazon by 2030. Lula and Brazil's Environment Minister Marina Silva made the announcement Monday as part of their efforts to combat climate change. This is Lula speaking from the capital, Brasilia. Brazil. Mainly because of the Amazon rainforest, Brazil is largely responsible for the world's climate balance. That is why stopping deforestation in the Amazon is also a way to reduce global warming. I know the size of the challenge of ending deforestation by 2030, but this is a challenge we are determined to achieve. Lula's remarks came as loved ones marked one year since the murder of the Brazilian indigenous researcher Bruno Pereira and British journalist Dom Phillips, who were shot dead in a remote area of the Brazilian Amazon last June while investigating threats to the rainforest and isolated indigenous tribes. Several suspects in the case remain jailed awaiting trial, including the alleged mastermind who's believed to be the leader of an illegal fishing criminal organization in the region. Dom Phillips' wife, Alessandra Sampao, said they've continued to receive threats. We have received death threats via letters and telephone. When is it going to stop? When is it going to stop? The death of Dom and Bruno was not enough? We are at a point where we can no longer ignore the issue of violence in the Amazon. It is very important that we become more vigilant. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined in Chicago by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Atlanta, Georgia, where residents shattered the record for turnout at a city council meeting Monday. As thousands lined up to voice their opposition to the construction of a massive police training facility known as Cop City. Police enforced enhanced security as people signed up to participate in a public comment session ahead of a vote to approve $30 million in additional funding for Cop City, bringing the total to $67 million, more than double the original estimate. It would be the largest police training facility in the country. This comes after an Atlanta police SWAT team, guns drawn, raided the Atlanta Solidarity Fund last Wednesday and arrested three people who'd been raising money to bail out protesters opposed to Cop City, charging them with money laundering and charity fraud. Georgia Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock criticized the arrests in a statement Sunday, saying, quote, 
While we still don't have all the details, as a pastor who's long been engaged in justice work, I'm concerned by what we know about last Wednesday's show of force against the organizers of an Atlanta bail fund and the questions it raises, he said. Those arrests come as 42 protesters face charges including domestic terrorism for opposing Cop City and after Atlanta police shot dead the environmental activist Manuel Tortuguita Teran in January. An autopsy shows they were sitting with their hands raised up in front of their body when police shot them 57 times. This is Muskegee indigenous leader Neko Chabon addressing the Atlanta City Council on Monday. I am a part of the Methodist structure. I have been a part of the United Nations uh, Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. I have been with conversations of human rights all across the world. I have walked with refugee camps in other parts and other nations of indigenous peoples. I've seen situations just like what we're going through here in other countries. I've seen things going on where people have been killed just like what we're trying to say should never happen here all over the world and I don't want that to increase. Every time in these countries I shared with them, no matter what, how you slice it, the increasing of more militarized mechanism never establishes a peaceful society. No matter what. It never accomplishes what your hopes, what your arguments are. In fact, it does quite the opposite. In fact, our community, we are already living through the living proof of that at this moment. Today, I think it's obvious. I don't support Cop City. Monday's Atlanta City Council meeting started in the afternoon and continued for nearly 15 hours until about 5 a.m. this morning. At one point, protesters broke out in song as public comment continued. Recess has expired. Recess has expired. Recess has expired. Ultimately, at about 5.30 this morning, the Atlanta City Council voted 11 to 4 to fund the Cop City facility. For more, we go to Atlanta for an update. Marlon Counts is with us, an organizer with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, who was one of the three people arrested last Wednesday and just spent four days in jail. Also with us, one of the first to speak during Monday's public comment session, Reverend James Woodall. He's a public policy associate at the Southern Center for Human Rights and co-author of Wired for Racism, How Evolution and Faith Challenge Racial Idolatry. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Reverend Woodall, let's begin with you. When you arrived at the Atlanta City Hall to give your public comment, can you talk about the different level of security and protocol to enter the premises that you'd ever experienced before? Just describe the scene for us and then what you said. Most definitely. Well, first, let me start by saying thank you for having us on the show today. Um, and when we entered Atlanta City Hall, we were met with bomb dogs. We were met with officers donning AR-15s. We had folks uh, in, in riot gear. 
Um, we saw a heightened level of security, both in protocol, meaning when we entered into the city hall, we couldn't even bring in food or water. And people were planning to be there literally all day and all night and to not even be able to bring in Gatorade. I had to throw my Gatorade out and I had to walk out of the city hall, throw it out and come back in. And, and you know, it, it took a miracle essentially to be able to even bring pizza in towards the, the uh, latter portions of the afternoon into the evening. And we saw law enforcement officers really on every single level of the city hall uh, in the inside of the atrium. And so I had never uh, seen that kind of activity in which uh, our law enforcement response would essentially, uh, you know, criminalize in some ways what we were trying to do, which was to lift up the voice of the people. Uh, and Reverend, I wanted to ask you, the, uh, the mayor of Atlanta has claimed that much of the opposition is from outside uh, agitators and, and a white movement. Uh, could you talk about your own history uh, your, uh, in Atlanta uh, and, uh, and why you got involved in this movement? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I'm a sixth generation Atlantan. In fact, my grandmother's granddad, his dad, purchased property in the heart of the West End of Atlanta off of Finley Avenue uh, for essentially $83 without a mortgage. And so our family has been in the heart of Atlanta for, for almost a century. And so and I'm talking before the Emancipation Proclamation. And several dozens and hundreds of other people, in fact, almost every single person that we saw and heard from uh, last night and, and yesterday afternoon was from Atlanta. Now, granted, there are people who are not from Atlanta as well, but who cares? Because at the end of the day, what we're fighting for is liberty and justice for all, which they pledged their allegiance to uh, for the flag of this yet to be United States. And so if there's injustice anywhere, there's a threat to justice everywhere. And unfortunately, again, democracy has failed us because that is just simply not the case. And so when I think about what the mayor said, in fact, I'll even tell you is that the mayor's mother taught my grandmother how to do hair, which taught my mom how to do hair. And so when I think about how I got involved in this work and I'm seeing what's happening on the ground each and every day inside of our facilities, I'm seeing you know, children and, and college students pulled out of cars and being tagged and, and, and laser, I mean, not laser tag, but, but um, uh, essentially targeted for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm seeing people die, literally die at the hands of law enforcement, both here in the city of Atlanta and surrounding these counties and these communities, because this is not just about the city of Atlanta. We're going to see departments and agencies all over this nation send its people, send its law enforcement and first responders here to train on urban warfare. And what we saw last week, last Wednesday, what we've seen over the course of the last few few months as relates to domestic terrorism charges is concerning and is exactly the kind of reason why we stand in complete opposition to this project. And this was a marathon meeting of the Atlanta City Council. Uh, your response to the outcome and the vote, and did you get a sense that any members of the city council were were moved at all by the testimony? Well, what I'll tell you is that that is a example and is indicative that our, our democracy has died. And the spirit of democracy has died because when the people show up 
and you see both parties, this isn't a a red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican kind of issue. We saw Republicans come out in opposition. We saw libertarians come out in opposition. You saw Democrats come out in opposition. You saw people who are not affiliated with any of the above come out in opposition. And when you see elected officials choose the side, not of the people, right? Not of justice and liberty for all, but when you see uh, uh, elected officials take the side of corporate executives and nonprofit leaders who seek to profit off of taxpayer dollars, right? What we should be talking about is, is, is charity fraud on behalf of the Atlantic Public Foundation because of what we've seen them do and how the numbers have just not added up. And so I'm concerned that our democracy is dead because our elected officials are not representing the people regardless of who they vote for. I wanted to bring in Marlon Kautz into the conversation with Reverend James Woodall. Marlon is with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, one of the three people arrested on Wednesday. This was just days before this critical Atlanta City Council vote, where they voted to um, approve what's now more than double the amount originally proposed for this police facility. Marlon, if you can talk about—I mean— how unusual the level of force used was in this raid on the Atlanta um, Fund, which not only has helped people who've been arrested around the cop city, but you do this around for many people who have been arrested. Absolutely. Um, yeah, in terms of the raid, um, it was terrifying, obviously. Um, and you have to forgive my voice. I'm still feeling the effects of, uh, the better half of a week in the Cab County jail. But, um, you know, we woke up to the sound of our door being broken down by a battering ram and our house being surrounded by dozens of SWAT officers. Um, and my first reaction, uh, was that this has to be a mistake. You know, naively, I thought this wasn't the kind of thing that could happen to organizers like us. Um, but once I saw the automatic weapons, the body armor, and I heard police discussing throwing a flashbang into our living room, I realized that these police had come prepared to kill us uh, in the same way that police have come prepared to kill activists um, protesting in the forest and, in fact, did kill Manuel Tortuguita Tehran. Um, and, you know, so we, we quickly surrendered. We were arrested in our pajamas and taken to jail. Um, so the experience was terrifying on two different levels, in this immediate way of what it was like to face that kind of police violence um, for doing nothing more than, you know, nonviolent um, work to support the rights of protesters. Um, but also on this higher level of, of what it means, right? Um, because if this kind of police violence can be brought, even against organizers like us who, uh, you know, who do nothing more than make sure that activists have access to lawyers, who make sure that they're able to make bail if they can't afford it themselves, if this kind of violence can be brought against people like us, who is safe in this city? And, and what does that mean for the right to protest and democracy? And Mona, what, uh, what happened at your bail hearing on Friday? What was the judge's response to your arrest and the charges against the three of you? 
Yeah. I mean, after days in jail, we finally got in front of a judge who confronted the allegations against us, the arrest warrants. And the judge very quickly acknowledged that the charges are baseless. They're nonsensical. Um, we're being charged with charities, fraud and money laundering. Um, and, you know, the activities of our organization are completely legal. They're transparent. They're above board. We very carefully follow all laws and regulations related to our work because we know that we are in the crosshairs of many political forces. Um, and the judge recognized this um, and fortunately issued us bail, um, which is, has been unusual in these protest cases, which are usually denied bail flat out. Um, and I think this shows that the efforts of prosecutors to demonize organizers associated with the movement against Cop City are beginning to be exposed. They're beginning to become unraveled and shown to be what they are, which is malicious political prosecutions that have nothing to do with enforcing the law, keeping the public safe. Um, what they really have to do with is bringing the force and violence of police and prosecutors um, to suppress a political movement, to suppress political speech. As we begin to wrap up, I wanted to ask Reverend James Woodall, um, you're deeply concerned about issues of police brutality and abuse of power. This is a police training facility. Um, uh, now you have um, Senator Warnock also weighing in deeply concerned about the raid on the Atlanta Solidarity Fund with weapons drawn by a SWAT team. But if you can comment on why you are concerned about a police training facility, isn't that what you would want, police to be trained better? It's exactly what I don't want, because when we think about police training, we're not talking about police training. We're talking about a infrastructure project we're, we have yet to talk about what they're being trained to do. In fact, if you were to look at it, I, and I've been in this work a long time. And every time we talk about police training, we're talking about a furthering urban uh, militarization of law, uh, 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 law departments or law enforcement uh, officers. We're not talking about de-escalation. We're not talking about ensuring that there is equitable accountability for law enforcement officers who disregard the training that they were already invoked in the earlier parts of their career and continuing in their professional development. We're not talking about the fact that every single officer in cases of police brutality and police uh, in, in involved death in the last 10, 12 years, and then that's just a small segment of the history but we're not talking about the fact that they have been trained and they've been trained very thoroughly. And yet these people still are dying. And so what we were arg uh, organizing around in 2020, what we've organized around after the murder of uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, after the deaths of a Tatiana Jefferson and so many others. I can go down the list. What we were calling for was accountability and true justice. And this 90 million dollars that. People are, are saying it's necessary for us to have better policing really is an insult because what we're not saying is that we want to build a system of public safety that's inclusive of all of us, not just law enforcement, because that is a political uh, football that people can uh, throw so that they can win elections. This is what that is about. 
We have uh, uh, an attorney general and Chris Carr who led that raid on Atlanta Solidarity Fund, who's trying to posture himself to run for governor. We have a governor in Brian Kemp who signed off and in, in, in endorsed that action as he tries to promote someone run for president and himself possibly for the United States Senate. We have Senators Warnock and Ossoff, who also weighed in only after a lot of immense pressure on behalf of organizers who were pissed off that they refused to say anything at all. And so what we have right now is not about training, it's not about public safety, and it has everything to do with the political aristocracy that refuses to acknowledge the pain and the reality of everyday life for everyday Georgians and everyday Americans. That is not democracy, that is not leadership, and that is so totally not public safety. Reverend James Woodall, I want to thank you for being with us, public policy associate at Southern Center for Human Rights, co-author of Wired for Racism, How Evolution and Faith Challenge Racial Idolatry. And Marlon Kautz, thanks so much for joining us of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. One of three members of the bail fund arrested last week during an armed police SWAT team raid spent four days in jail. Next up, we look at the growing calls in Australia from the prime minister on down for WikiLeaks founder, publisher Julian Assange, to be finally freed from prison in London, not extradited here to the United States, where he faces 175 years in prison. We'll speak with Julian's attorney, Jen Robinson, in London. Stay with us. Things First by Nick Drake. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn now to look at the case of Julian Assange as calls grow for him to be freed. The WikiLeaks founder has been locked up for four years in London's Belmarsh prison, where he awaits possible extradition to the U.S. to face espionage and hacking charges for publishing leaked documents about U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. He faces up to 175 years in prison in the United States if convicted. This comes as a growing number of politicians in Australia are calling on the United States to drop its case against Julian Assange, who is an Australian citizen. In April, 48 Australian lawmakers signed a letter to the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland saying the U.S. prosecution of a journalist and publisher has, quote, set a dangerous precedent for press freedom. A group of Australian lawmakers also met recently with U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Carolyn Kennedy. Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has also spoken out. In May, he talked about Assange during an interview with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC. Enough is enough. This needs to be brought 
to a conclusion. Uh, it needs to be uh, worked through, including we're working through diplomatic channels, but we're making very clear uh, what our position is on, on Mr Assange's case. When Australians uh, look at uh, the circumstances, look at the fact that um, the, the person who released the information is uh, walking freely uh, now, having served some time uh, in, uh, in incarceration, uh, but is now released for a, a long period of time, then they'll see that there's a, a disconnect there. There is nothing to be served by his ongoing incarceration. That's the Australian Prime Minister. Last week, the Sydney Morning Herald made headlines when it reported the FBI has restarted its probe of Julian Assange, but representatives of WikiLeaks say the U.S. investigation was never closed. We're joined now in London by the Australian human rights attorney, Jen Robinson, who's been a legal advisor to Julian Assange since 2010. Jen, welcome back to Democracy Now! You're just back from Australia, where you live. Um, where, actually, President Biden was expected to go for the Quad meeting um, uh, with the Prime Minister of Australia, but had to cancel that and return from Hiroshima to Washington to negotiate the debt ceiling uh, legislation. Can you talk about what Albanese now is calling for, and what response do you have to this information from the Sydney Morning Herald that the U.S. has reopened a probe that no one knew had been closed? Well, first, great to speak to you again, Amy, um, and great to be back on Democracy Now! Uh, I've just returned from Australia, where I was in Australia for a visit with Stella Assange, Julian Assange's wife. It was her first trip to Australia, which we had planned to coincide with Biden's visit to Australia. Um, what Biden would have seen had he come to Australia was a huge amount of support, both from the Australian public. We saw a huge protest in Sydney against the extradition request and the United States prosecution of Assange. We saw a packed out room of MPs in a cross-party briefing. Now in Australia, we have bipartisan support. So it's not just our Prime Minister, Prime Minister Albanese, calling for this case to be brought to an end. It is also the leader of the opposition. And when Stella and I briefed MPs in Parliament, there was standing room only. There was that many MPs from across the political spectrum there wanting to hear from Stella and I about the latest in the case and who are pushing for this case to be brought to an end. So we've seen a sea change in the political response in Australia. We're seeing polling, unprecedented polling of an overwhelming majority of the Australian public who support our government in seeking to have this case closed. And the question now is what the United States will do with it. Um, the, the story last week about the FBI supposedly reopening this investigation, this is an investigation that has been open for a number of years. Um, this is a Trump administration indictment. We know that the FBI had been conducting inquiries in the interim period. And it's important to, to recognise that the FBI reached out to uh, or allegedly reached out to, a ghostwriter on Julian's book. This to us shows the desperation of the FBI and how um, how they are grasping at straws in terms of their investigations in this case. There are no new facts in this case. The US government has known the facts that form the basis of this indictment since Chelsea Manning went on trial back in 2012. And the fact that the FBI is now suddenly starting to make inquiries from bit part players is, I think, goes to show that the, the lack, of, well, the, well, the strength or lack thereof of the US case.
And Jane Robinson, I wanted to ask you about other developments in the case, especially concerning the surveillance conducted of Julian Assange while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, the Spain's El Pais uh, had a story headlined, Police Omitted Folder Called CIA from the Computer of a Spaniard Who Allegedly Spied on Julian Assange. Who was uh, this Spaniard and what do you know about this? So in addition to fighting the extradition case um, and fighting the prosecution of Assange, Julian and, and our legal team have been fighting back through various different legal actions. There's the um, the action that I took successfully against the British government for unlawful sharing of information with the United States government as Julian's lawyer. We have the, the action against the CIA in the United States um, taken by a group of lawyers on Julian's team who visited him in the embassy and the Spanish case, which you've just raised, where uh, Julian has taken a criminal complaint against David Morales, who was the head of UC Global, the security company that was providing um, quote-unquote security inside the Ecuadorian embassy, but it was revealed by El Pais in recent years thanks to whistleblowers that, that he was providing information, allegedly providing information to the CIA. We've learnt just this week that in the disclosure in those proceedings in which Mike Pompeo himself has been um, subpoenaed to give evidence uh, about the nature of the spy, unlawful spying on, on Julian and on us as his lawyers, which fundamentally flaws the US criminal investigation, uh, that the Spanish police failed to disclose uh, further evidence, including files marked CIA, that further indicate the involvement of the CIA and spying on us as lawyers inside the embassy. Um, this is really important revelations. As, as Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers uh, leaker, said in, in our extradition case, his case, his espionage case, was thrown out under the Nixon administration for unlawful spying on his, his doctors. Uh, in this case, you've seen so much more abuse. So a Trump-era indictment are now under a Biden administration. This prosecution is still being pursued despite widespread and uh, huge amounts of evidence of unlawful spying on lawyers, on the seizure of legally privileged information, and indeed plots to kidnap and kill Julian Assange by the CIA in London. Um, at this point, you need to ask, even leaving aside the free speech implications of this case, the First Amendment concerns that are now increasingly being raised by Democrat lawmakers in the US calling on the US to drop this case. There has been so much abuse in this case, and it begs the question, if abuse of this nature was enough to throw out a case under the Nixon administration, why is this still being pursued under the Biden administration? And you mentioned the group of, of Democrats in Congress pushing for the case to be dropped. Do you have hopes that the Biden administration will stop seeking his extradition and, and uh, that Julian can be freed? We certainly hope that the Biden administration will do the right thing and drop this case. We now have the Australian government and our prime minister coming out hard in support of the case being dropped. Uh, we have a special relationship with the, with the United States, between Australia and the United States. And this is the Australian government should be able to make this ask of the United States. But separate from the international concerns, uh, we are thrilled to see that uh, Democratic lawmakers like Rashida Tlaib, o AOC, Ilan Omar have written to Garland, pointing out the First Amendment complicate uh, the First Amendment consequences of this case, asking for the case to be dropped. And I think the more that there's noise in Washington, uh, pressuring the DOJ to do the right thing, pressuring Biden to do the right thing, then we'll get to the right outcome. And the right outcome is that this case is dropped. Can you talk about the model 
that the Julian Assange case brings. I mean, let's remember, we say four years in the Belmarsh prison. But before that, seven years uh, really in captivity in the Ecuadorian embassy. He'd been granted political <coughs> asylum, but he could never leave the embassy in order to the consulate in order to get to Ecuador because he was afraid of being arrested and then extradited. Um, but this issue of a publisher um, facing these espionage and treason charges in the United States. You have Evan Gershkovich, who has been arrested in Russia. The world recognizes the problem with a journalist, they say, who's trying to get military secrets. It's really what journalists do. What did Julian Assange do? Um, he published State Department um, Pentagon secrets. Uh, and he said, and many people agree, including human rights lawyers around the world, evidence of U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. It may not be convenient for the U.S., but it is the job of a journalist. Can you talk about what this case means for how, then, the U.S. can raise cases like Evan Gershkovich, that he should be freed by Russia? Thank you for raising this point, Amy. It is such an important point. First of all, as the precedent that's set by this case, this case means that any journalist anywhere in the world could be extradited and prosecuted in the United States for publishing truthful information. That is creating a dangerous race to the bottom globally. What message does that send to Russia and to China uh, about extraditing and prosecuting journalists who publish the truth about Russia or China? Um, then we get to the point of it, how it diminishes the moral authority of the United States to be able to raise free speech issues. Now, we're in the Evan Gershkovich case, we're seeing a case where Russia is using an es the espionage charges against a journalist for the first time since 1987. So this is picking up and running with the precedent that the United States is setting at home because of the Assange case. That is dangerous. When you've got a country that purports to bring democracy and free speech to the rest of the world, prosecuting a journalist for espionage, it is a dangerous situation that we're in. It threatens the First Amendment, but it actually threatens um, free speech around the world. And that's one of the reasons why this case needs to be dropped. Uh, final question, and we just have 30 seconds. What would a resolution of this case look like? How would Australia play a role in this? We're asking the Australian government to continue to raise this with the president and with the relevant agencies in the United States. We say the right outcome is for the case to be dropped and for Julian to be allowed to return home safely to Australia. Jennifer Robinson, I want to thank you for being with us, human rights attorney who's been advising Julian Assange and WikiLeaks since 2010. She is Australian. Next up, thousands of people have been evacuated in Ukraine after an explosion damaged a critical dam in Russia-occupied Kherson region. Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other. We'll go to Kyiv for the latest. Stay with us. Я хочу чути твій голос Десь серед війни Десь серед війни Подзвони Я так люблю тебе, сонце Також як і ти Також як і ти Ночі бентежні і Серед бою стоять наші вежі між світлом і пітьмою рідні хати і міста, наче рани, а ми 
Десь блукаєм чужими світами сон. Це моє я люблю тебе понад усе. Towers by Mandry. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Evacuation efforts are underway in southern Ukraine after an explosion destroyed a critical dam on the Dnipro River in the Russian-occupied region of Kherson. Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other for the blast. Ukraine's government says floodwaters are threatening 80 towns and villages, as well as the city of Kherson, home to over 300,000 people. The breach could also limit drinking water supplies across Kherson and Crimea. The disaster has raised fears of a nuclear accident at Europe's largest nuclear power station, the six-reactor Zaporizhia plant, which is upstream from the dam. Russian officials say the water levels of a reservoir used to hold cooling water for the plant has already fallen by more than eight feet. The International Atomic Energy Agency said there is no, quote, immediate nuclear safety risk. Ukraine also says at least 150 tons of machine oil has been released into the Dnipro River. Ukraine's ambassador-at-large, Anton Korenovich, spoke earlier today at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Under the leadership of President Zelensky and with the courage of the armed forces of Ukraine, Russia cannot defeat us on the battlefield. So, it targets civilian infrastructure to try to freeze us into submission. Earlier today, just today, just Russia blew up a major dam located in Novokakhovka, causing significant civilian evacuations, harsh ecological damages, and threatening the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Russia's actions are the actions of a terrorist state, an aggressor. Meanwhile, the Russian-installed governor of the Kherson region, Vladimir Saldo, blamed Ukraine for the attack on the dam. The reason for this behavior is simple. There is a saying in Ukraine, if I cannot eat something, I will at least bite it. Meaning, if we are unable to do something properly, we will play dirty tricks. And first of all, it is about creating a humanitarian crisis with food shortages. But you know what? We will never starve, because the whole of Russia is with us now. Another reason is to deflect attention from the horrible defeats that Ukraine faced during their counteroffensive yesterday. We go now to Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, where we're joined by Oleksiy Pasyuk, deputy director of the Ukrainian NGO EcoAction, where his focus is on energy and nuclear energy. Oleksiy, thanks so much for being with us. Um, it is not clear what happened at this point. What is clear is that there is major flooding and that there is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe located in Ukraine. Uh, the question is, uh, among other things, is that threatened? Can you talk about what you understand at this point and what you're most concerned about? Yeah, well, I, I will start that uh, it's pretty clear what happened. It's not very clear what are the consequences, but I find it uh, that you give too much space to Russian explanation what is happening. 
it's uh, it was reported already last year that Russians have prepared uh, mine basically the dam because it was one of the scenario of what you do and there is a clear situation now with Ukraine uh, 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 kind of planning to start a military operation to kick off Russians from the left bank of Dnieper River. And uh, one of the options which was on the table, which was discussed, is uh, Ukrainians crossing the river. So it's a kind of uh, obvious military solution to flood the area at this moment. Uh, now, um, as to the impact, obviously the, the, the territory is flooded and as uh, with any uh, similar, I mean, flooding, and especially of this scale, it's, you have uh, um, an uh, impact which can be caused by like uh, facilities which on the ground, which consider oily uh, materials, uh, I don't know, west uh, uh, storages, all that is basically now flooded, although they were not designed to uh, withstand it. Um, exactly as it was mentioned, there is an issue of immediate impact uh, of flooding now, but then the, the reservoir is also a source of water and there will be a major impact later through the year and the summer for the areas which use this water for um, agriculture, basically. Now, uh, the reservoir, indeed, uh, over the uh, dam, um, is a source of water, and that's where the Parisian nuclear power plant uh, stays. But we have to understand that uh, there was part of this area which is uh, separated by the dam. So effectively, nuclear power plant has part of the reservoir which will not be immediately impacted uh, by the falling uh, water level because uh, it's uh, separated uh, uh, water um, pool. And uh, also we have to recall that currently five of six units are in so-called uh, cold shutdown, so they don't produce electricity, and so the demand for cooling is lower. However, they have one unit uh, operational just to maintain electricity for supply for their own Needs. So there is, uh, as uh, International Atomic Energy Agency said, there is no uh, immediate threat because now they still have water and electricity. But the question is for how long they, they will be able to maintain it. Uh, so we face a future risk that uh, power plant would not have uh, enough water to cool down. And uh, it's not, uh, there is no obvious solution at this moment to understand how it will be solved. They would need to provide water at a certain moment. We don't know how much water will stay uh, uh, in the sense that we don't realize uh, yet how big is damage to the to the dam if there will some water stay in the reservoir. So, and uh, of course, uh, while technically there are possibility of solutions, it's all happening in the combat areas. So it's very difficult to repair. It's difficult, for example, to make evacuation this, this moment because uh, Russian is basically uh, shooting into the areas where evacuation is uh, happening. And also there this unexpected uh, for normal life um, impacts, like uh, you have some areas which were mined, and so now you have this mine basically taking over by water to the areas where they're not supposed to be. So this is obviously uh, a disaster in uh, in very different senses. 
And uh, Alexa, you mentioned that five of the six reactors have already been shut down, though they still need to be cooled to some degree. Uh, what are the prospects for that last reactor to be shut down and why hasn't it happened so far? Well, this is, uh, I guess, a difficult choice now for people who maintain it because uh, the power plant uh, for cooling, they need to have electricity and uh, you have to have uh, external supply to the power plant. But we regularly saw this uh, news when this uh, um, lines were down, so there were no electricity. So they maintain. So for cooling, you need water and you need electricity to pump it. So once you stop this reactor, you also have higher risks that you would not be able to pump water even if you have it. Um, I guess this is a dilemma which uh, power plant station currently faces. And Alexei Pasyuk, um, who would this benefit the most? Um, Russia says this will hurt more the Russian side, and that is more proof, they say, that Ukraine did this. But then you have the Ukraine counteroffensive that is said would be thwarted by this kind of catastrophe. Can you talk about the situation and where we're actually talking about, how critical this area is at this point in the Ukraine war? Well, I, I think uh, Russians and this guy who you were previously showing, who is a law occupation administration head, he have a difficult time to explain to the citizens why Russia, which is supposed to save them, flood them. Uh, for for Ukrainians, there is no reason to that. That's Ukrainian citizens, basically. We we uh, eager uh, the country to uh, to get them back. Uh, again, uh, there is an expectation of the military advance by um, uh, Ukrainian side. And uh, when you were saying uh, the dam is in the occupied territory, the dam is on the river, which currently separates two, uh, two sides. So Ukraine is planning offensive and they were also planning to go across the river to the Russian control areas. And flooding in this sense is effective. I assume it was uh, blown up at this moment because uh, Russians assume that Ukrainians are ready to start um, uh, moving forward in that area. And uh, Alexei, we only have about a minute left, but I was wondering your sense of the the counteroffensive that uh, Ukraine has been uh, supposedly uh, launching in the last couple of days. Uh, what you're hearing uh, in Kiev about it? Well, I don't follow this military part, but I think it's uh, long expected. And I think the main message which we currently hear from the state is to be quiet about it, because if uh, so, there is very little information. And I think whoever would have it would not share it. Well, Alexei Pasyuk, we want to thank you for being with us, Deputy Director of the Ukrainian NGO EcoAction, where his focus is on energy and nuclear energy, joining us from the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv. And that does it for our show. Following up on our previous discussion on Julian Assange, to see our interviews with Julian Assange when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy taking refuge and before that when he was free, go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermin Sheikh. 
Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nogueira, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. If you'd like to sign up for our Daily Digest, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Our website is democracynow.org. Thanks for joining us.